right. So we're going to talk today about the family of God, one of the most amazing things. I'll tell you, it spoke loudly to me I, when I was a young man, when I uh, first heard about Jesus Christ, I was very lonely at the time. And so when I came to my fellowship, I just loved it. I loved the fellowship. I loved the like-mindedness and the sincerity. That was the thing that really struck me. You know, after, you know, getting involved with the ministry, I read papers afterwards. Well, they love bombed people, (laughs) that it was like some kind of manipulative thing to get you to come to fellowship. I never felt that. Everything I felt was sincere, that, that I had the sincere love of the saints, that people just genuinely loved me. And as I became involved with the ministry, I started understanding the family of God and what that was all about and how important that was. And I started seeing people who were unbelievers as potential family members. I mean, what a great way to think about that, huh? That, you know, if I spoke the word and that that person believed, he could be my new brother or sister. I heard a teaching one time about, you know, that you're spiritual offspring, that you can have an offspring. I could speak the word to somebody and they could get saved. And then they could speak the word to somebody and that person could get saved. And so I could, in, in a sense, have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren of people who got saved. So this idea of family is interwoven all through what we do as Christians. I think about the great parable of the prodigal son, right? And the, and the father, his forgiveness and absolute love for his son and and how he didn't care about anything else, just bringing his son home. And it's, it's something a parent can truly understand of having a child who has gone off the, into a wrong area and, and seeing your child come home. So throughout the Word of God, you have these images of household, family. And so I wanted to look at that today. I thought it would be a great thing to look at now during this um, family time, right? Christmas time. So what is a family? Well, in one sense, a family is a collective. It's a group. And we have all kinds of different groups, don't we? We have kingdoms, and we have tribes, and we have nations, and we have parties. We have states, we have countries, we have assemblies. You know, we have all kinds of groups. And within these groups, we have different relationships, like within a nation, for instance. We have compatriots, you know, fellow citizens. Uh, Within a tribe, there are tribesmen. But these are general relationships. The family, on the other hand, is a much more intimate relationship, a much more intimate collective. These aren't just general, these are specific and they're internal relationships as opposed to external. In a family, we have fathers and mothers. We have sons and daughters. We have aunts and uncles. We have in-laws and steps, right? Family. It's family. And it's interesting, I was thinking about today, you know, in this fellowship, we've talked about this idea of identity politics. I was thinking about, well, what is so alluring about identity politics? What's so attractive about it? Identity politics, another way of saying that is people who are identifying in their gender groups or in their ethnic groups or in their sexual identity groups. And these groups represent for these people family. It's just a false family. But for them, it it fills this basic human need for family. You know, these groups are especially appealing to the disaffected in our culture. People who have had a bad family life or no family life. 
a lot of it has nothing more to do than be tribalism. Does everybody understand what tribalism is? Uh, what tribalism is? What tribalism means? It's a group of people who have a similar thing, right? People split up into Republicans and Democrats and, you know, gays and, and, and trans, right? Um, so that's, that's the, you know, dividing up of our culture into these tribes. But a family is much different than that. A family is, you know, uh, meaningful and sincere. We've all had families growing up, some more functional, others more dysfunctional. But we've had families. So when we come to the family of God, in, in some ways, the family of God isn't very different from the families that we grew up with, you know, in, in certain senses. Go to Ephesians chapter 3. You know, God is the author of the family. God set the whole thing up. Look in verse 14, it says, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole, and the whole should rather be translated every, of whom every family in heaven and earth is named. Now, what does that mean, every family in heaven and earth? Well, there are families on earth we know of, human families, families of animals. Do, you, do we think of it that way? Yeah, you, we should, right? A m mother bear and her cubs, that's a family. But there are also families in heaven. The Bible speaks of angels and cherubims and seraphims and living creatures. So there, we don't know much about them, but there are heavenly families. Go to Ephesians 2. And verse 11, it says, Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who called themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men. So at the time that Paul was writing this, Paul had formerly been a Jew, right? And he was speaking to the Gentiles. Ephesus was a Gentile city. Does everybody know where Ephesus is or was? It's, it's on Turkey, exactly. The eastern coast of Turkey. Western coast, I'm sorry. Western coast of Turkey. So it says, verse 12, it says, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, you Gentiles, excluded from the citizenship in Israel and, the for and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. So you were lonely. You were lonely and you were, you were outside the pale. You were outside the blessings of God. It says in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. So Paul acknowledges that there were two groups, right? There was the Jew, which was the nation of Israel, later to become Jews and the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. And then there was everybody else, and everybody else was a Gentile. And Christ, Christ was the Messiah to Israel. In the Old Testament, Christ was referred to as the Redeemer of Israel. But through the crucifixion of Christ, the Gentiles were welcomed in. And we read about this progression in the book of Acts, that the Gentiles started coming in. Look at verse 14. For he himself, this talk in Jesus Christ, he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and its regulations. So Jesus Christ abolished the law. He abolished the law, and because he abolished the law, he was able to bring these two groups together as one. 
It says his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. So in this new body, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, but we are what? all one in Christ, right? We're one in Christ. Verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those that were near. Well, who are the near and who are the far? Well, the near were the Jews and the far away were the Gentiles. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners or aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. So we are members of God's household built on the physicist himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, in Christ, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So Jew and Gentile, separate groups of people, right? They are collectives. And then God removes this wall, this wall of partition brings these two groups together into one. You don't have to turn there, but we know the verse in First Peter chapter 1. It says that you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. That word for seed is the Greek word spora, right? It shows this idea of growth of reproduction, right? We are born of seed, and it's not corruptible seed, it's incorruptible seed. What does that mean? That means that you got it, you get the seed, it's forever, it's incorruptible. That means that we have eternal life. Go to 1 John chapter 5, 1 John 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is what? Born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. That's pretty clear, isn't it? So everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, is born of God. That's the criteria. Jesus is the Messiah. Since Jesus is the Son of God and always does the Father's will, he who loves the Father loves the Son as well, right? They are one it says in scripture. Go to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Look at verse 8. It says, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and it will, it will be enough with us. And Jesus answered, do you know me, Philip, even after, or don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. That's kind of a curious thing to say, isn't it? How can you say, show me and show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Now, have we read this elsewhere? This whole idea of being in the Father and the Father being in us. And remember, we talked about that, that that indicates what? It indicates a joining. It in indicates oneness. And Jesus is, it says, don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. That's wonderful. The Father is working within him. Jesus and his Father are joined spiritually. 
we believe when we read scriptures that God dwelt in Christ, that God manifested himself through Christ, that God taught men by him and communicated to him his spirit without measure. That's what we believe. We believe that Jesus Christ is the most glorious display, expression, and representative of God to mankind so that when we see and know him, we see and know the heavenly father who is invisible. So that when Christ came, God visited the world and dwelt with men more conspicuously than at any former period. That's what we believe. So when we read about how Jesus Christ came, that he was God with us, he certainly was, wasn't he? He certainly was. Jesus said, when you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Well, literally, that makes no sense at all, does it? Because you can't see an invisible God. But when you looked at Jesus and perceived who Jesus was, you perceived the Father. Jesus was kind. Jesus was truthful. Jesus was confronting. Jesus Christ had grace. Jesus Christ had mercy. Jesus Christ healed. Jesus Christ forgave. I think of a little baby. You look at a little baby and you say, oh, I see his father in him. He looks just like his father. Well, spiritually, it's the same thing. People see Jesus and they see God. What's really mind-blowing is that when we walk in the light as he is light, when people see us, they see God. Now, that's kind of cool, isn't it? You know, when I was growing up, I, now, of course, it's not true anymore because we're all grown up and, you know, we all physically went our own way. But my brothers, my brother and my sister and I, when we were younger, people used to talk about what a strong family resemblance we had. And we looked very much like my father. We had his look. And that is true in the Christian household. In the Christian household, we all have the same look spiritually. And you think about it, the devil can see it too, can he? He's like, meh, those guys look like they're you know, the offspring of God. But anyway, go to John chapter 1, John 1. Look at John 1, look at verse 11. It says, he came, this is talking about God, he came to that which was his own, and that's talking about the Jews. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not out of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. This is kind of an interesting section because the Jews were, of course, very preoccupied with lineage, weren't they? It was all about what tribe you came from and what family in that tribe. And you think about it in our modern cultures, we do the same thing, right? We talk about, you know, what's your pedigree? You know, are you of good breeding? You know, and the beautiful people hang out with the beautiful people because we want beautiful babies. And people are, you know, I mean, even though we try, we try to say that we're not, we tend to think that way. But in the household of God, there's no such thing. This kind of thinking no longer means a thing to us. We could care less. That's all man's judgment. When you realize that you are a child of the Most High God, everything else is superfluous, isn't it? Go to First John chapter 3 and look in verse 1. It says, How great is the love the Father has lavished. I love that word lavished. That's a great word. The love that the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are the children of God. 
and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears, meaning Christ, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Isn't that beautiful? So we are children of God, and we are children of God. Why? Because God lavished his love on us. It's beautiful. So when we speak in terms of family, in this case, children, we are speaking in very personal terms. It's a personal thing. We're not just members of an organization here. We are children in a family. We are God's very own. We are his children. And God lavishes his love upon us. He dotes on us. It's very personal. And we're surrounded in this family by siblings, brothers and sisters. Go to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 says in verse 15, For you did not receive the spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you receive the spirit of what? Sonship. And by it, not him, by it, we cry, Abba, Father. And you remember not too long ago, we talked about this term, Abba, and we recognize that there's two elements to this word Abba. There's the element of intimacy, of a child's intimacy with his father. In addition to that, there was this element of obedience, that the father is respected by the child, and the child does what the father wants, not out of you know fear in one sense, but because of this great love relationship. Like I said, our father dotes on us. James talks about that every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, right? God blesses us with all kinds of gifts. But that same Father also shows up in Hebrews chapter 12, where it says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves and punishes everyone he accepts as a son. So there's two aspects of it. And um, now, I know that, you know, in previous ministries, we were all taught that Abba meant daddy. Uh, and we talked about it in this fellowship. It, it really doesn't. It means a intimate father, father. So I'm uh, honestly, and I think I've mentioned this before, I'm not a real big fan of people calling God daddy. All right. It's misrepresentative of who God is. And I really don't think that that should be in our prayer life. God is our father. We are intimate with him, but he's also our father who corrects us when we need to be corrected. Okay. Same father. Verse 17 or verse 16. Now the spirit himself itself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. We are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory right? So as children, we stand to receive an inheritance from God. Colossians says that we are to give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. I love that. That's awesome. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Look in verse 9. It says, but we see Jesus, who is a little lower than the angels, now crowned for, uh, with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy, and that's Jesus, and those who are made holy are of the same family. 
So Jesus is not ashamed to call them what? Brothers. How about that? So Jesus calls us brothers or sisters in the, in the female case. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Isn't that beautiful? So Jesus is our brother. We are members of a family. You can look upon Jesus as being the oldest brother of the family. And this isn't some theologically virtual family that we're talking about here, or a family in name only, where the terms such as father and brother are used, but without any real signification or attachment to meaning. What do I mean by that? Well, the whole notion of the Trinity, right? That father and the son are the same, and, and yet they represent to me a father and a brother at the same time. It doesn't really work. There's plenty of obtuse explanations you'll hear out there, but if you really sit down and think about it, the question naturally arises, how can Jesus be both God and the Son of God at the same time, right? And it really throws a monkey wrench into this whole family thing. I read this uh, person, William Channing, I've read him before in fellowship. He says, we say that the Son cannot be the same being with his own Father, that he who sent him into the world to save it cannot be the living God who sent him. The language of Jesus is explicit and unqualified. I came not to do my own will. I came not for myself. I came from God. Jesus always expressed towards God the reverence of a son. He habitually distinguished himself from God. He referred to God all his powers. He said without limitation or reserve, the Father is greater than I. Of myself, I can do nothing. Isn't that something? And that's what you would fully expect from a son. You read all four Gospels, and you get exactly the same thing. Jesus was a, Jesus was a reverent son to his heavenly Father in every case. And by saying that Jesus was the Son of God, it means son in every way that the term connotes. Jesus was God's offspring, his progeny. And since he's God's offspring, and we are God's children as well, it's both natural and expected that we are siblings. We're siblings. Jesus isn't my God. Jesus is my brother. He's my brother. God is my father. It makes sense. It's just a shame that we have to spell this out, something that was so self-evident. You don't have to turn there, but 1 Corinthians chapter 8 says, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. And the next verse says, but not everyone knows this. Jesus Christ is not God. The only God that there is that we recognize as Christians is the Father. That's what the verse says. Go to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, verse 29. It says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. How about that? The firstborn. He's the oldest. So as we go on here in family, I want to talk about how family takes care of family in a practical sense. 
You know, this is something that you won't find, this idea of family taking care of family, you won't find it in these big shoebox churches. They're too big. Go ahead and go to Acts chapter 2 and look in verse 41. Now, when we talk about the early church, this is about as early as it gets. This is right after Pentecost. Verse 41, it says, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayers. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. I heard one time, actually I've heard it several times, people refer to this as Christian communism, right? As, as if this was some kind of political movement. This isn't communism. This is family. This is family taking care of family, like that in your own natural family. Somebody has a need, somebody else has abundance, they share it. No big deal. In verse 46, it says, every day they continue to meet together in the temple courts. They broke their bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved, right? This is a pretty simple recipe for success, isn't it? That the church is the family and we get together and we dwell together as a family. Go to Matthew chapter 12. So technically, anyone who gets born again of God's spirit is a brother or a sister, okay? They are immediately part of God's family. Practically, however, there are, there's another side to this, and I wanted to read it to you. Chapter 12, Matthew, look in verse 47. Jesus is up teaching, and it says, Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So practically speaking in the family, there is a, a person may technically be a brother or sister by the new birth, but really the people that we hang out with in family are people who are doing the will of God, right? Doesn't that make sense? That they are hearing God's word and they're doing God's word. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 5. Now, this is a very interesting section uh, dealing with the practicality of the church, okay? The living within the church and dealing with different situations. 1 Timothy chapter 5, and look in verse 1. It says, Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Teach younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, young women as sisters with absolute purity. I love that. That's the family right there. You wouldn't, well, I, I don't know about your family, but I wouldn't rebuke my father sharply. If I disagree with my father, there would be a real tone of respect if I brought it up to him. It's the same in the spiritual family too, that when we have elders within the church, people need to watch how they speak to them. There needs to be a degree of reverence. I've seen this whole thing overstepped many times, and, and it's not good. That when you are dealing with elders in the church, there needs to be a degree of respect, okay? A degree of respect. And that should be taught and expected from the youngest child up, right? Now, certainly, we want a household where there is plenty of truth. And if you have an elder who's not walking correctly, you want people to be able to speak up, even the youngest who's among us. 
but they need to be able to, and they, they're going to have to do it with respect. There's got to be respect there. We're supposed to treat young men as brothers, older women as mothers, young women as sisters. I, I just love that whole dynamic there. Look in verse three, give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. Okay, so we're talking about a very practical thing here. Think about back in, uh, remember uh, back in the book of Acts when they had a situation where, you know, the Hellenists had come in and, and so you had the Jews and you had the Hellenists and the Hellenists were being neglected. The widows were being neglected in the daily ministration, right? And they went to the, the leadership and they said, you know, what do we do here? And they said, look, that you know, we're doing our thing. We're studying the word of God, you know, appoint somebody to do it. And what did they do? They went out and appointed Stephen. And that's where Stephen came into the church. His job was to organize the ministration of these, these widows, right? Which means taking care of them, feeding them, whatever, right? That's the idea. So within the church, there is this aspect of, you know, church life. That the church needs to take care of people. But the criteria here is those who are really in need, okay? Really in need. It goes on in verse four, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family. And so repaying their parents and grandparents for this is pleasing to God, which means if you have a widow and she has family, the family should be taking care of her, right? That makes a lot of sense. So when we're trying to figure out, well, who is a widow in need, who really is in need, it's going to be the widow who doesn't have family, who who is, you know, without that kind of support. And it's to keep people from being destitute, in other words. The family needs to be relied on. The immediate natural family needs to be looked to for supporting, you know, the wilder, uh, the widows. And this goes for old men, too. It goes for old men, too. I wrote down here two criteria. The widow needs to be really in need, and the church also must have the wherewithal to help. If you have a fledgling ministry, the fledgling ministry is not going to be able to do a lot to help that widow. You can help as much as you can. So that's the idea here. Now, when I was going through this record, I was thinking of 1 John. You don't have to turn there, but 1 John chapter 3 says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. Doesn't that make sense? And it, it makes even more sense when you are committed to each other and you have this this family bond. You know, I see my my brother or sister has a need. You know, I'm I'm pulling money out of my bank account to help out if I need to, because they're my family. They're not just a person that goes to my church. They're my family. It says if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in actions and in truth. That's what First John says. Makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? If I can sit back here and look at my brother or sister and they have a real genuine need and I turn a blind eye to it, how can I say that the love of God is in me? It, it isn't. Look at verse 5 back in Timothy. It says, the widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help, right? It isn't like, okay, well, I guess the church is there. This is my retirement plan. No, church isn't a retirement plan. That widow continues on, you know, looking for different ways for support, but the church is certainly there to help out. 
But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. Give the people these instructions too, so that no one may be open to blame. If anyone does not provide, now listen to this, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's pretty clear, isn't it? That means that we have duties. We have duties within our families to take care of our family members. We're duty-bound. You know, I think of our culture now, how shameful it is for people who neglect their parents and siblings because they've suddenly become inconvenient. It's so wrong. We are supposed to lay down our lives for the brethren. That means we are devoted. When we're with family members, we're not checking or watching going, how long is this going to take, right? It's our life. That's what we're called to do. Verse 9, no widow may be put on a list of widows unless she is over 60, has been unfaithful to her husband, and is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. In other words, this is a, a person who has been contributing to the church, contributing to the household, and the household needs to take care of this person, right? Somebody who just started going to church last Sunday and says, well, uh, I've got some needs and I expect the church to fulfill those needs. No, 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 no. It's not going to work that way. You've got to be contributing. Verse 11, as for the younger widows, do not put them on such a list. For when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they'll want to marry. You know, people have needs. Thus, they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge, right? Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And not only do they become idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying things that they ought not to. And by the way, this isn't reserved just to the young widows. This is all widows and, and really all people. I mean, if you're going to sit around and be idle and you get into being a busybody and a gossip, that's no good because it's one step away from what? Slander. Slander. And we'll read about that. Verse 14. So I counsel young widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. There it is. Some have, in fact, already turned away to follow Satan. That's pretty stark, isn't it? Turned away to follow Satan. And you will know them by their fruit. Verse 16, if any woman who is a believer has widows in her family, she should help them and not let the church be burdened with them so that the church can help those widows who really, who are really in need. I, I just love the practicality of this advice. Look, there are, there's only so much money and we can give it to people who aren't in need or we can give it to the people who really are in need. Verse 17, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. The scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain and the worker deserves his wages. What does this mean? It means that, you know, the church would be taking care of its elders because they're the oxen out there treading out the grain. That's completely proper that the church would attend to the needs of the minister. If he's doing Doing the work, the church ought to be able to take care of the minister. Verse 19, do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. And there again is another rule that I see frequently broken is 
entertaining accusations. That means if you want to talk to me about my elder, you better bring another witness with you because I'm not listening unless you do, right? We need to be careful about that. Galatians chapter 6, and this is where I'm going to finish up today. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. It says, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. What I said earlier about, you know, all of a sudden you have a situation thrust upon you where you have a family member, you know, a parent who dies and the other parent needs to be taken care of, or a parent is sick or a sibling is sick. You didn't ask for that, that that responsibility, but it's yours nonetheless. And so it would help if we went through this scenario in our minds, right? What if, what happens if a situation like that is thrust upon me. Am I willing to step up? And if I am, am I willing to do it with sincerity and with lightheartedness and goodness, right? Not grudgingly or of necessity. God loves a cheerful giver, doesn't he? As we have opportunity, the opportunities certainly will reveal themselves. As we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially those who belong to the family of believers. That's awesome, isn't it? And, you know, I'll tell you something. It's, it's not just as we have opportunity, it's looking for the opportunity. That shows me the true believer is somebody who is looking for an opportunity to bless and looking for the opportunity to support. And what can I do for you? What, how can I pray for you? You know, what, tell me how I can help you, right? We have one another in our hearts. And I'll tell you something, folks, you may look in our little fellowship as being, you know, oh, that's, that's a nice little Bible fellowship. There's people who are millionaires who would pay all kinds of money for the fellowship that we have here. It is truly precious, absolutely precious. It's family. In this fellowship, we rejoice with those who rejoice. And we weep with those who weep. You know, I think about just in parting here, the last thing that Jesus said, one of the last things he said when he was hanging on the cross. He looks down in, in John chapter 19, it says, when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Isn't that great? I mean, I get just big goosebumps about that. That Jesus, even though he was dying on the cross, was taking care of his mother. And it was John, he was the disciple, stepped up and took care of Jesus's mother. Isn't that beautiful? That's family. That's family. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you for that. We thank you, Father, that you've called us to this family. And Father, if there's, if there's nothing else we learn, Father, help us to be good members of this family, good family members, people who care for our brothers and sisters. Father, we certainly care for you, and we care for our big brother, Jesus Christ. Thank you for this in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Hatred. world for this is our father